the world tends to make a lot of Satan. We make scary movies about him and, you know, just imagine this scary, wicked creature that um, we need to really fear. And then on the flip side of that, the world presents pictures of God. You think about some of the movies that have come out and represented God as this serious goober that is just kind of a laugh, kind of a forgetful sort that's really more comical than mighty. So what I've enjoyed about this week, or last week and this week, is that we're just kind of turning the lights on and just kind of amp- amplifying the truth, illuminating a biblical view on Satan. And really, it's going to change the way you view the gospel. And it may change the way you read your Bible, the way you treat the church, and the way you enjoy Christ. So John 12 is where I want to focus. We're going to focus in verse 31, but for the sake of context, I want to look begin in verse 23. I want to escort you into the time and place that this conversation is taking place. In verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Greeks have just come to Jesus. This is a, an important moment in the ministry of Christ. This is when up to this point he's been saying, The hour is coming. The hour's not yet here. The hour's coming. And now is the point where he says, now the hour's here. And he says that because the nations have gathered. These Greeks coming to him is more than just a couple of Greek dudes. I don't remember what we named them. Stephanos and something else. More than just a couple of Greek fellows coming to Jesus. This is an important moment in the ministry of Christ. And this is when he begins his last week pre-cross. This is Sunday that he's entered Jerusalem, so this is likely taking place around Sunday-ish, maybe Monday, early on in that week. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he's talking about in this glory hour is not where he has a major processional with fanfare and bands and marching dancing girls. But really, it's something altogether different, and it's a lowly time, and it's a time this hour is characterized, this cross, cross is, he describes this cross like a seed that falls to the ground and dies. So this is a dying hour. He amplifies that hour and fleshes that hour out as the seed that falls to the ground and dies, but in so doing bears much fruit, and therein lies the glory. And then in verse 27, we're still in that hour, that hour that he's describing. He's characterizing hours, an hour is about a period of about a week. It involves when the Greeks came to him first. It involves his sermons and his teaching over the course of the week. It involves his Lord's Supper that he has with his disciples, his washing their feet. And it involves him submitting to wood and nails and spit and beatings and insults and condemnation and injustice. And then it ends with that tomb growing vacant, especially vacant on Sunday morning. That's his hour. And he says, now, in that hour, in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. Revealing his humanity. He's made of the same stuff we're made of. While fully God, he's still fully man. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then the clouds part, or at least there's an audible parting. We don't know if it's a visible actual thing. But then God speaks from heaven. He says, oh, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it yet. Then he continues on with details regarding this hour. In verse 31, he says, Now, in this hour, remember the context, is the judgment of this world. And then he says, the second part of that verse where we camped out last week in this, Now, in this hour, will the ruler of this world 
be cast out. Verse 32, he says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. Last week we considered two questions. The first one, addressing really the ruler of this world. What does it mean that he's the ruler of this world? Today we're going to consider what does it mean that he's cast out. But first, in regards to the ruler of this world, we consider two questions. If he has influence in this world, how much influence does he have? And what we found last week, the same guy that wrote this book of John also wrote the book of 1 John. And in 1 John... After he heard Christ say this, after he heard, watched Christ go to the cross, after he looked at a vacant tomb, after he saw and ate Christ, or not ate, he did eat him, eat, ate with Christ, and after he saw Christ ascend, that he writes the words in 1 John that the whole world is under the rule of Satan. So what does it mean here? If he has influence, how much does he have? He has influence because the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But it's only by permission is what we established last week. He doesn't scratch his nose except by permission. you got to love that. you got to love that reality about Satan. Scott shared with me a sermon that he read by Spurgeon. He read this week, and I shared this on Wednesday night, but I'm going to share it again. It's just that good. He says, what has the devil been doing these thousands of years? Has he not been the unwilling servant of God and of his church? Huh. Now, that's a different viewpoint. Satan being a servant of God and of his church. He says, he has always been seeking to destroy the living tree, but when he's been trying to root it up, it's only been like a gardener digging with his spade and loosening the earth to help the roots spread themselves the more. And when he's been with his axe seeking to lop the Lord's trees and to mar their beauty, what has he been, after all, but a pruning knife in the hand of God to take away the branches that do not bear any fruit and to purge those that do bear some that they may bring forth more fruit? Once upon a time, you know, the church of Christ was like a little brook, just a tiny streamlet, and it was flowing along in a narrow dell. And just a few saints were gathered at Jerusalem, and the devil thought to himself, (laughs) Spurgeon didn't write that. That's my insertion. (laughs) Now, I will get a great stone and stop this brook from running. So he goes and gets this great stone, and he dashes it down in the middle of the brook, thinking, of course, he should stop it from running any longer. But instead of doing so, he scattered the drops all over the world. And each drop became the mother of a fresh fountain. You know what that stone was? It was the persecution of the saints. And by that persecution, the saints were scattered by it. But then they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And so the church was multiplied and the devil was defeated. Satan, here's where Spurgeon turns on Satan. Gets all up in his face. Got like this. He says, Satan, I tell thee to thy face, thou art the greatest fool that ever breathed. And I will prove it to thee in the day when thou and I shall stand as enemies, sworn enemies, as we are to this day at the great bar of God. And so, Christian, mayest thou say unto him, whenever he attacks thee, fear him not, but resist him steadfast in the faith, and thou shalt prevail. You know what? That faith has got to be nourished by the reality that Satan still works. Oh, 
Yeah, he's got tremendous influences in this world, but it is only by permission. So, given that, if he has influence in this world, but it's only by permission, is Satan to be feared? We ought to ask that question, you know, what the world says. But we've got to be educated and illuminated by this book. Is Satan to be feared? And we must answer from given that last week is no, absolutely not. He ought to be recognized and acknowledged. We know that he's like a lion prowling around looking for somebody to eat. But he only does that by permission. He ought to be recognized and acknowledged as an enemy, but not feared. Our fear should be reserved for the one who spoke and galaxies hung. That's who the one we ought to fear. We ought to fear the one that spoke and oceans were teeming with life. Swarms of swarms. We ought to fear the one that spoke and forests were full of animals that were mooing and maybe not mooing in the forest. (laughs) Growling and grunting and bugling at the spoken word. That's who we ought to fear. Our fear ought to be for the God of tsunami. It ought to be for the God of hurricane, for the God of typhoon and tornado. That's who we ought to fear. We ought to fear the one that speaks and dead men come forth. That's the one we ought to fear. For the one who speaks and lame men walk. For the one who speaks and fierce seas calm like glass. That's who we are to fear. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he encouraged them. He said, be subject, to no, or be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's who we are to fear. So this week's question, if we dealt with those two questions last week, we're going to deal with one this morning. The question is going to be, what exactly did Christ's hour, the lifting up of Christ, do to Satan? What actually was achieved there? Let's go back to our passage in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world in this hour. Now through this cross, through my preaching, through this supper, through my washing feet, through my submitting to wood, nails, spit, beatings, injustice, and through my vacating a tomb on Sunday morning, will the ruler of this world be cast out? What does it mean? We understand that he rules by permission, but what does it mean that he is cast out? First of all, that word is pretty straightforward in the Greek, but let me, let's expose it a little bit. The word cast out actually means driven out. It also means thrown out. This is the Ben country version. It means chunked out by the nape of the neck. That Satan is grabbed by the work of this hour, and he is chunked out. There's actually good evidence in some other early manuscripts that this phrase for thrown out And cast out actually means cast down and thrown down. That'll be important here in a moment. But it's less important about the direction that he's cast and the reality that he's like a rag doll. He is manhandled by the living God and he is thrown about. And I'm going to show you some pictures in Revelation where he's thrown all over the place for the chump that he is. Now, we've addressed the meaning. I want to address the tense. If the same writer of this book in book... John chapter 12 writes 1 John chapter 5, where I shared with you last week, and I even mentioned it this morning, that the whole earth, the whole world is under the rule of this evil one. How do you reconcile the tense? Because it looks like in this hour that Satan is cast out. And here's what you've got to appreciate. This is a future tense 
casting. You can't see it really well in the ESV, which is what we've got in front of us. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The New American Standard does a good job of it. It says now the ruler of this world will be cast out. How to understand how that works is imagine your kids acting up at the mall or at Walmart. This has never happened to me or Christy, but... Um, some of you may have experienced this in a public place where your kids act up, and you hear mama say, now you're going to get it. <laughs> now, she may not actually pull out paddle or pun- instrument of punishment at that point, but the reality is the pronouncement has been made. You've done it, and the surety of punishment is coming. You can be sure that mama or daddy will follow through with what's in store. And that's the image of what's said here. It's like Jesus saying, because of what happens in this hour, because of my cross, and because of that empty tomb, Satan is doomed. And Satan will be destroyed. And follow-through is imminent. That's what he's saying right here. That's how you reconcile the meaning of the word, but then the future tense with the reality that the world is still under the rule of Satan pronouncement has been made. Here's how I want you to fit the whole thing together. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to show you where this casting that's referred to here in John chapter 12, this chunking out, chunking down, throwing down, fits into the whole story, the whole gospel story. Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures that it does not refer to but where you're going to see Satan getting cast down and cast about. I want you to see it because I want you to see him for the ragdoll that he is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now this is referring to what I'm calling the primordial war. Some of you may have heard that term before, primordial. When you hear people making an argument for evolution, they talk about man kind of popped up from this primordial soup. I don't really know where the soup came from, but in that argument, is this, this man came forth from this pre-time gumbo, or pre-life gumbo, before days marked off and before people talked to each other and had families. That's the word. I'm, I'm borrowing that word. I'm going to appropriate it for an appropriate thing. This primordial war that takes place between Michael and the angels and Satan. Notice God's not fighting because that wouldn't even be a fight. But Michael and his angels are fi- and, the, and the angels are fighting Satan here in this passage. And here's what happens. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was chunked down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. So here in John chapter 12, that's not the chunking that we're referring to. This is an early chunk. This is at the chunk at the beginning of the age. This is how Satan ended up in the garden, tempting and deceiving Eve. That's how he got here. He was chunked out of heaven. Turn to chapter 20. Here's the next chunking. Chapter 20. Verse 1, let me also prepare you, I want to help you with something, realizing that Revelation, we have this mindset about Revelation being a book about all end times. 
It's a book about the old ages. It's all the ages are captured in Revelation. It's a time soup or time stew. It's not a timeline of chronological events. This is a, a past tense thing. And Jesus even referred to it. He says, I saw Satan thrown down like lightning from the heaven to earth. So this is a past tense primordial event. Now here's a different casting down. Another picture of the rag doll that Satan is. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him, chunked him into the pit. And he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This is a not yet chunking. This is a chunking that's in store. From my study of Revelation, if you studied Revelation some, you may be familiar with this picture of a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on the earth. That might be news to some of y'all. You just need to read that mysterious book. It's right in there. A thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on the earth where the saints rule with him, at least the saints that were martyred over the ages, but likely you and me, rule for a thousand years with Christ on earth, and the whole time, it's a Satanless earth. Satan is in the bottomless pit. But that's not quite the end of the age just yet. For a thousand years, Christ reigns, and listen what happened. That's not the chunking down right here that's referred to in John chapter 12. Listen what happens. There's still one more throwing down yet in store. Look at verse 7, chapter 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. You would hope that after a thousand years of Jesus Christ reigning on earth, seeing justice, humility, truth, that the earth would be like, oh, that old liar is Satan. We're not going to listen to him. But unfortunately, the earth runs to him like flies to flypaper. Listen to what happens. These people that come from the four corners of the earth representing every nation, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Listen to what happens next. This is the chunking down that John 12 is referring to. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire like a rag doll, grabbed by the nape of his neck. He'd thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the casting down that was achieved in the work of the cross. It just doesn't take place yet. Like standing in the mall saying, yeah, you've done it. At a later point in time, when you get home, you take care of business. This is business. This is Satan getting his due. Satan's wickedness and rebellion against God is what prompted the being cast down from heaven to earth. But it is the cross of our Christ that accomplished this Satan being thrown into the pit. Thrown into the pit of fire and brimstone forever and ever and ever and ever. The cross is that powerful. The same cross that rescued you and liberated you and redeemed you is the same cross that condemns Satan to eternity in hell. Because Christ was lifted up, because Christ submitted to wood and nails and beatings 
and spit and injustice and insults, Satan is cast down. Because Christ is lifted up, Satan will be cast down forever. There's a view of Satan in the church that doesn't really reconcile with this picture of the ragdoll Satan. I believe that this view started around 200 A.D. There was a guy in the church, his name was Origen. Before you dismiss this story I'm about to tell you in this theory, it's called the ransom theory, I want you to realize that this thing that happened 1,800 years ago ago could have crept into your understanding of the gospel. In fact, it's likely that it has. Listen to what this guy, Origen, came up with. It's a theory called the ransom theory. It says that as a result of sin, Adam and Eve specifically, that Satan acquired formal dominion over the earth. It's my earth and it's my humanity. That he actually took ownership of humanity. That's what this guy, Origen, said. And in order to free people from the grip of Satan, that God had to kill his own son. And that that payment, that ransom payment, went to the devil. His view was that this would formally compensate for Adam and Eve's sin and would release humanity from Satan's grip. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Origen, while like it or not, really being one of our forefathers, although off the mark in this view, if he only had one verse in his Bible, he could end up in that place where he envisions a ransom due to Satan. And that would be this verse. Listen, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who's the ransom due? We know from that passage that there is a ransom due. You could come up with a ransom theory, but biblically you wouldn't describe it the way Origen did. We have to figure out who we owe. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. If we are hostages, and if a payment must be made, who must that payment be made to? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. We talk about love a lot as Christians, but we don't talk about what unfolds here in the rest of this verse a whole lot. In fact, I'm about to read a a word that many Christians don't even know what it means, and that's a tragedy. It's a word that I must confess that I didn't know before four or five years ago. And the word that now that I know it now, I want every believer that I come in contact with to know this word. Listen to this. He says, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You might think, oh man, that's a big word. He's going to get academic on us. That's kind of lame. Let me put it in Ben terms for you. The word means wrath absorber. God loved us in this way, that he sent someone to absorb the wrath that was due us. And the administrator of that wrath is a holy, righteous God. It's not Satan. Propitiation, by definition, is absorbing wrath that is due for another that comes from God. And this Christ, our Christ, bore the wrath that was due us from a holy God. So the reality is we are saved by God from God. 
Where's Satan in that? A chump. I'm about to show exactly how he's a chump. And how he's really just a tool and instrument. But he's not the wrath administrator. He's not the righteous holy one who is rightfully angry. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. This is a passage that many of you would recognize even before you turn there. Isaiah chapter 53 is a chapter that's a prophetic passage about our suffering servant. When I read this chapter, I cannot believe that, they, that the Jews did not recognize Christ. When I talk with Jews now, periodically, through forums or something like that, if I have a chance to engage them, this is where I want to go. What do you do with this, this chapter 53 of Isaiah? Because it describes our Jesus. But listen to verse 10 of this chapter. Yet it was the will of the Lord, that's meaning Yahweh. That's not to be confused with Satan. Hopefully we can recognize the difference. It is the Lord, or is the will of Yahweh to crush him, the suffering servant. It is the will of God the Father to crush God the Son. He, meaning Christ, or the Father has put him, meaning Christ, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Listen, the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Who crushed the suffering servant? The Father crushed the suffering servant. So who owes Satan? Nobody owes Satan. God owes God. He owes himself. He owes his holiness. He owes his righteous character that he can't turn a blind eye to sin and somebody's got to pay for it. If someone didn't pay for it, he would be betraying himself. So he paid the ransom to himself. If he's to save some, a sinful some like you and me, then somebody's got to die and somebody's got to pay for our sin. And Satan Really, is just a pawn in that. God did not owe some powerful gangster holding the world at bay, holding the world in prison and in captivity because Satan is just a ragdoll. He's a castabout, chunked about, thrown about. He owed his holy character that sin could not go unpunished. A couple years ago, Evan asked me about the faith, and she was in the, what we believe to be the beginning of her journey of faith. And I was in her bedroom talking one night before she went to bed, and she was asking me some questions. And I had this illustration that came to mind. It's one that I still enjoy and appreciate because it helps me share with children and adults in a lot of ways how this works. And as I share this illustration with you, I want you to be prepared for the reality that this ransom theory from origin 200 or so A.D. could have crept into your view of the gospel. I was talking with Evan one night. I said, Evan, she was asking me how this whole thing worked. And I said, Evan, I want you to imagine that you're going across the street to the Rodden's house. Ken and Don Rod living, living across the street. And, and uh, Jake and Bailey live over there. They're friends of Evan and Luke. So Evan was able to envision that. Okay, I'm crossing the street. I said, Evan, I want you to imagine that as you get about halfway across the street, you look down and your feet are stuck in concrete. You are ankle deep in hardened, dried concrete, and you are immobilized, frozen. You can't go anywhere. I had to introduce her to the imagery a little bit. And I said, okay, I want you to imagine that tri trip across the street is your life. 
and that you are frozen in sin. You are enslaved to sin. That's what the Bible tells us. So she was able to kind of piece that together. And I said, okay, Evan, I want you to imagine now that you look up on Oak Creek Drive and there's an 18-wheeler coming at you, locked and loaded, barreling down the street, shifting gears like Smokey and a Bandit coming after you. I didn't say Smokey and a Bandit because she wouldn't even know what that is. But her eyes got this big, and she's envisioning. She, know what's a, she knows what a Mack truck looks like, 18 wheels, locked and loaded. And she's imagining that. And I said, okay, imagine that thing's barreling down. It's going to run you over. But at the last second, someone picks you up and swoops you out of the street. And they set you carefully, unscathed, over in the Rodden's yard. But in so doing, that one who picked you up and set you in that yard is whacked destroyed, crushed by that 18-wheeler. And, of course, she's just silent, listening to the whole thing. And I said, Evan, if that is a picture of your life, and if you're stuck in the street by sin, who was that that picked you up and saved you? She said, that's Jesus. I said, yes, ma'am. I said, now, who's the one? Who's the Mack truck? And she said, that's Satan. I said, no, ma'am. And that's the answer I get 95% of the time when I tell that story. Really, to date, 100% of the time. No, that's Satan. No, ma'am. That's not Satan. That is a holy, righteous, angry God that you have crossed through your sin. You are saved by God, from God. God owes Satan nothing. Satan is a chump and a rag doll. He was trounced in this hour. He was defeated because of the work of this hour. He was conquered and crushed by the work of this hour once and for all. And while he still rules right now, which he does, while the whole earth is still under his rule and influence and power, he rules by permission. And this is the part I love. His days are numbered. And he will get his due because of that cross. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This is the verse that inspired our bulletin cover and the title of last week's and this week's message. I asked the question at the beginning of the sermon, what happened to Satan when Christ died on the cross and when he left the tomb, especially vacant on Sunday morning? What was achieved? What actually happened to Satan? We know so far that he was defeated and his doom was secured. But this verse here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, is what inspired us really to go to the length to say that he was punked by the cross. How could we come up with the, the image of Satan getting a wedgie? It's because of the reality of what happened on that cross. It was the ultimate spectacle. I've never seen that show punked by, or punked, whatever. I don't even know what the name of it is. Punked, or I think it's on MTV. I've never seen it, but I think it's kind of a more edgy version of Candy Camera, which is what I grew up on. And man, we laughed when somebody would get chomped on something like that. And it was especially funny when somebody got really mad. You could tell somebody's really proud. Somebody really thought a lot of themselves. They just made to look like a total goob. 
That's what happened in this cross. This is the verse that inspired it. Listen to it. He, that's meaning God, disarmed. That's meaning Christ specifically. Disarmed. That word disarmed means stripped. It's like he disrobed somebody. Through the work of the cross, he disarmed, stripped, and disrobed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, actually the word there in the original language is it. That it means the cross. That cross gave him the ultimate eternal jumping. Put him to open shame for eternity more. All we have to do is read it and enjoy it. We're going to see it and know it forevermore as we see him grabbed by the nape of the neck and thrown into the lake of fire. We'll know that that cross is what did that. That cross is what ultimately chumped Satan. This imagery of this public spectacle that's used here in Colossians chapter 2 is what was used of those who were defeated in battle. As a king or a general returned after battle, if someone didn't die in battle, they were lined up, chained, and marched into town for the whole city, the whole country, for everyone to see, for everyone to laugh at, for everyone to make fun of. Losers, look at you. These guys who once had wielded these big swords, who were once scary and intimidating, ooh, They're made out to be the chumps and goobers that they are because they got their behinds handed to them. That's the imagery that's used here. And the thing that did that, the thing that achieved that, is the cross. Here's the crazy imagery in the whole thing. Here's what I would call the kingdom imagery. Because when I think of the kingdom of God, it's contrary. It's flip what the world says. Listen to the kingdom imagery. Bible tells us in Revelation that Satan is a seven-headed dragon with ten horns. I've never seen one of those, but I bet it's pretty intimidating. I bet it's pretty scary. So I'm imagining this shame walk, this loser's limp into Jerusalem. And I'm imagining Satan at the front of the line of the defeated. His veins are pulsing and pumping out as he's chained and he's fighting against the chains. And he's got thousands of his rulers and authorities behind him. And I'm seeing this processional, this loser's limp walk into Jerusalem. And I'm imagining what that must have been like as these guys, driven by pride, angered by defeat, with Satan out in front. But then out in front of him is the victor. And here's the crazy kingdom imagery, is that out in front, the victor is one from whom men hide their faces. The victor is... A man considered despised and forsaken. The victor who chumped Satan for all time with all his seven heads and ten horns was smitten of God and afflicted. He was the humble one, the lowly one, the gentle one. Out in front, the victor is a lamb pierced in his hands and pierced in his feet and pierced in his side. And just the icing on the cake and the imagery is that he's riding a donkey's colt with his toes dragging the dirt. That's our king. That's our victor. That's the true victor that we should fear over the ages.
the one that we should worship, the one that we should adore and enjoy. He's the one that defeated Satan in this hour, on this cross. He rides in victory on a donkey's colt. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer in this sermon and engaging these truths is that we will have a higher view of you and a more accurate biblical view of Satan. I pray, Lord, that we will see him for the threat and enemy that he is, but that we'll see him through the lens of the cross for the ultimate all-time patsy ragdoll that he ultimately is. And then we'll see your majesty and your power and your wonder and your glory and your design. And we'll be in awe of you. What I pray as a result of engaging these truths last week and this week is that we will just have a bigger view of you and a more accurate view of Satan. I pray, Lord, also that as a result of this, that we not have too low a view of Satan, but that we recognize that he is an adversary that prowls around looking for people to devour. And that we as a people will corporately together put on the full armor and protect ourselves against him while we worship and enjoy our Lord and his cross. Thank you for exposing Satan for the chump that he is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.